Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 133rd edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, an information technology, cybersecurity, and digital forensics firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is using gamification of access to justice to train artificial intelligence. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O dot com. Thank you to Answer One, a leading virtual receptionist and answering services provider for lawyers. You can find out more by giving them a call at 800-ANSWER-THE-NUMBER-ONE or online at answerone.com. That's answer the number one.com. Thanks to Scorpion. Scorpion sets the standard for law firm online marketing with proven campaign strategies to get attorneys better cases from the internet. Partner with Scorpion to get an award-winning website and ROI-positive marketing programs today. Visit scorpionlegal.com slash podcast. Thanks also to ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. We are very pleased to have as our guest David Colorisso, who is the director of Suffolk University Law School's Legal Innovation and Technology Lab. An attorney and educator by training, he has worked as a public defender, data scientist, software engineer, and high school physics teacher. He is the author of A Programming Language for Lawyers, Q&A Markup, an award-winning legal hacker, ABA legal rebel, and fast case 50 honoree. So thanks for joining us today, David. Uh, Thanks, Jim and Sharon, for having me. Well, David, start by telling us, if you would, a little bit about the Learned Hands Project, and I love that name, at Suffolk (laughs) Law School, and how you came to be involved in the project. Yeah, well, the most important thing, obviously, is the name there, because you you have to have some (laughs) wordplay. This all came out of a hallway conversation at um, not this year's, but last year's, uh, what used to be called the TIG Conference, so the Legal Services Corporation's um, Innovations and Technology Conference. And I was having a hallway conversation with Margaret Hagen from the Legal Design Lab at Stanford, and she was sharing some of her work she was doing with uh, taxonomies of, of legal issues, trying to figure out a common way to represent legal issues to help people be able to find them online. And someone from Microsoft came by, and they were talking about how they were having a hard time building some text classifiers to be able to take people's questions and sort of label them. And, you know, it was just this sort of combination of events. I said, well, you know what? You're having a problem. That's probably because you need more training data. And we had just seen a talk by someone at Reddit, uh, one of the moderators in our legal advice, uh, talking about how they get all these questions from people. Now, you can talk what you want about, you know, the answers they get on Reddit, but they were real questions from real people, real issues. And... uh, 
they, you know, Reddit calls itself the front page of the Internet. So these were things that people were expecting to be out there for all the world to see. And the, uh, the moderators and actually the policies on the forum make sure people scrub them of um, personally identifying information. So I said, you know what we should do? We should just go get the, you know, those questions from the Reddit folks, and then we can use that as uh, data that we can then label. We should just make a game, and we can have people label that data with the taxonomy that you're putting together, Margaret, and then you could easily train uh, machine learning algorithms to be able to spot those issues, and then that solves your problem there, uh, folks who are having a problem building a classifier. And, and that, was the, that was the seed. And so we, we went from there and did just that. You know, it sounds so simple, but it's pure genius. <laughs> <laughs> but it really comes down to the fact that uh, there just wasn't a good data set out there that you could train machine learning on to spot issues in lay people's legal questions. And if there's one thing that uh, machine learning needs, is it's a lot of data. And so we just had to make that data. Well, that is extremely interesting. And what exactly does this project hope to accomplish? Well, there are three main things that it's looking to do. It's the creation of this taxonomy that Margaret's lab was already working on, the creation of a labeled data set that will make publicly available for other people to use for either benchmarking purposes or to train their own machine learning classifiers. And there we're trying to take this uh, sample of text from Reddit, the, and then we've put together a game that allows people to go, this learned hands game. And the idea there, of course, the joke, which makes sense when you think about it, is many hands make light work, right? So it's learned hands. We ask people to come in. They're presented with a question uh, that someone has asked on Reddit and then asked to classify it as being one of a set of different issues um, that have been identified in the taxonomy. And then we use that. We combine those together, and then you have a labeled data set. So you have some bit of text, and it says this bit of text, these you know, three or four issues are present, and then we can use that to train a machine learning classifier to basically spot whether or not those issues are in new texts. And so what you do is you have to get hundreds or thousands of those together. And so we're having a lot of people... Uh, come in, play that as a game, and use that to create this labeled data set. So that's our second thing. And then the third thing is eventually you want to train these classifiers. So actually make uh, tools that you can feed it some text, and it'll spot uh, basically spot these issues and say, oh, I think there's a good chance that these three things are there. And then, of course, all of these together are really kind of a, um, a Trojan horse, if you will, to get people to adopt the taxonomy. Um, so the taxonomy that we're working with is the second version of NSMI, which is the National Subject Matter Index, which is a, a taxonomy that some folks in civil legal aid will recognize. Um, and the idea there is that it serves as a common language then that people can use to talk about their issues. So whether or not they're going to use the classifier itself um, the classifier becomes, you know, the, the, the app that sort of gets people to want to use it. And then by adopting that taxonomy, they label all their contents uh, with that taxonomy. And then now all of a sudden, if someone says, hey, I need, you know, issue 275, then someone else knows what that means. And that someone else, if they're a computer, can do it really quick. And this helps get people to where they need to be. Well, I think you might have answered a part of this question already. But, but why is it so important that you create this new taxonomy? Well, you know, the example I like to use is we all know that uh, – that attorney in the office who still uses WordPerfect, right? Huh. Yes. Yes, and you we know, do. They send over their brief, and you try to open it up, and you can't open it up, right? So the idea is that there needs to be standards in the way that people communicate information. And so what the taxonomy does is it provides a standard format for be people to be able to talk about the same issue. And this becomes really important in a lot of different areas. But you can imagine, if, let's say, just in web search, if you're searching for some issue, if you can imagine a world where all of these issues were in the metadata of the web page, so in the part, not, the, not the part that the people read, but the part that the machines read, then it could recognize that, oh, these three pages are about custody issues. And then it would be able to group them together and more reliably get that information to people when they're searching for that. 
So it's really about having a common language so that different people can be talking about the same thing in the same way, which really allows them to cooperate better. And of course, when I say different people, I mean different people and machines. Oh, boy. Oh, this new world we're going into. (laughs) (laughs) So, David, how do you see the fruits of this project being used ultimately? Well, so obviously there's this idea of of people building tools that can talk to each other, which is sort of central to the goal we're going for. But the the place where people always want to talk about is, you know, what are these classifiers and, you know, what can they do? And really it's basically about feeding in some text and doing some issue spotting. And um, the two sort of use cases that I really see that I, I find exciting is consider, you know, these sort of online sort of lawyer for the day sort of setups. So something like uh, a lot of different bar associations will run these where you go to a website and it says, you know, ask your question. And then basically that question gets routed to an attorney on a limited representation basis and they help answer your legal question. Now, sort of the dirty little uh, secret behind a lot of these sort of projects is that a lot of questions go unclaimed by an attorney. And um, it's easy to see some of the reasons why that might be, right? If I've been doing housing law for 30 years, I don't want to pick up someone's IP question. So what has to happen is when someone comes in with a question, it has to somehow be labeled uh, appropriately so it can be routed to the right volunteer attorney. So one of the things that something like these classifiers could do is just read over that text and say, oh, well, it has these three issues in it. That seems relevant for you know, our volunteer attorney over here. Let's route it to their attention. So just being able to sort of um, queue up things and direct them to the right people um, is one of the use cases that I'm really excited about. And then in a similar way, you can imagine it being used by folks looking for resources on, say, a court uh, service center website where they come in and they have a question, but they don't quite know the right term of art to use to find it. So right, if you know what you're looking for, you can just search for it in the search bar. But if you're coming in and you're saying, oh, well, you know, I'm getting a divorce and there's something to do with the kids and you don't know what to call a custody issue, then there are ways that people probably talk about custody issues that are common. And so what this will do is it will learn over time, because we're training it on people's real questions, how people actually talk about issues without using legalese. And what that allows us to do is to be able to translate these lay people's questions into that taxonomy um, that says, hey, it's this type of issue. And then now you can match that up on the back end. You say, well, they have this type of issue. What resources do we have that are relevant, and then you just match people up. So those are two of the use cases that, um, that I'm really excited about, really just sort of lessening that distance between people expressing their needs and getting the resources they need. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Feel like your marketing efforts aren't getting you the high value cases your firm deserves? For over 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours attract new cases and grow their practices. As a Google Premier Partner and winner of Google's Platform Innovator Award, Scorpion has the right resources and technology to market your law firm aggressively and generate better cases from the internet. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter AnswerOne Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. AnswerOne is available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. AnswerOne helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 1-800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer.
Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is using gamification of access to justice to train artificial intelligence. And our guest is David Colarusso, the director of Suffolk University Law School's Legal Innovation and Technology Lab. So, David, how in the heck do you go about creating a taxonomy? Well, so this is where um, really the person that, that would better be able to answer these questions is my partner in crime over at the Stanford's uh, Legal Design Lab, Margaret Hagen. Their lab has been working, has been taking point on creating this, this new taxonomy. And what they've done basically is they've taken an existing taxonomy, um, the NSMI, the National Subject Matter Index, um, which is used by some people in the civil legal aid space, and has basically said, well, where are there holes in this? And what can we add to it? And then also, where is there duplication? Where can we you know, combine things together and sort of try to bring it from this, this taxonomy that right now has like 2,000 some odd entries into something sort of more manageable? Um, the idea of being able to create this sort of hierarchical structure of, say, about 20 parent categories and then children categories under that, which is to say, like, the difference between, say, family law and housing law. And then within that, you might have a breakdown of issues, you know, sort of eviction or contract issues, et cetera. So uh, what she's done basically is she's doing a lot of user uh, interactions. So she's talking to subject matter experts. She's having them do um, sort of card sorting exercises where, you know, she'll say, well, what are, you know, the things that you think are important inside this area? And then seeing if they sort of agree with uh, what she's hearing from other people. And then we're also doing some um, machine learning stuff where we're looking at the text that we have now, and we're sort of trying to do latent topic modeling, which is just basically sort of a fancy way of saying where we find groups of questions where people are talking about roughly the same thing, which is to say they're using the same words. And then we go and we say, well, there's sort of like five clusters in this in these housing questions people are asking about. What do those what do those correspond to? Um, so using that to also interrogate um, these questions we have uh, from Reddit, which actually I hadn't mentioned, we have 75,000. Uh, questions that the moderators over there provided us with. So, you know, that's a pretty good data set. Although, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, it's not the end-all be-all because the people on Reddit are not representative of all of our clients, but uh, that can be something we talk about more later. So, yeah, so it's just a bunch of talking to subject matter experts and, and testing things out and making sure we got all our bases covered. David, I follow somebody on Twitter who likes to pull out the uh, craziest question and answer sets from that particular forum. There's been some entertaining things posted. (laughs) So how do you go about creating these text classifiers, and how do you know they're accurate once created? Uh, Obviously, the key is getting people to label uh, these texts. And as you said, people go through and read the Our Legal Advice questions sort of just for fun. So we're hopeful that uh, one of the things that uh, will happen is that people will want to go and play our game just so they can read these questions and then also, you know, provide something back to the community. Uh, actually, if, you're, uh, if anyone listening is a, with a bar association or a, a firm that's giving out pro bono hours, um, we think actually playing this game should count. So, you know, talk to us and we, we can help you out and uh, maybe help out a bunch of other folks. But basically what we do is we have these labels, and then we take those labels and we train them. That's the sort of term of art we use when we talk about machine learning. So the example I tend to use is I say, you know, think about your email filters, right? So I work at a university, so I have a filter uh, that filters the emails that come in from my list emails, and they go into a little folder called free food. So you might think about, well, what are the things I'm going to look for in emails to, say, throw them into the free food filter? So I have uh, basically if the word pizza shows up, if the word cheese or wine shows up, then basically gets thrown into that free food filter. Now, I was able to build those sort of keyword searches based upon my knowledge of, you know, sort of free food emails that come across the transom. What we do is we basically have people labeling the text. They're saying this is housing law, this is family law, without 
any knowledge from the machine side, not telling it to be looking for specific words, but we build up enough examples that what happens is that the machine can go in and it can find patterns. Some of that patterns has to do with finding specific words. Some of it has to do with a little more complicated than just word search. We have some sort of semantic uh, things that are coming up. But basically, it's taking that text, turning it into some numbers, and then looking for patterns in those numbers, and um, being able to try to find spot those patterns in other new texts as they come in. And so the way we know that we're doing any good is we basically we take the data we come in that's labeled. We take about 20% of it. We set it off to the side. We then train our model on that remaining 80%, so it comes up with some model that it thinks it can you know, take in a new text and make a guess as to what's going on there. And then we take that same model and we test it now on that 20% we held out that it had never seen before. And then we look and we see how, how well it does. And we look across a number of metrics. Um, accuracy is not the only metric we look at. So obviously you can make a really accurate model in some cases quite easily, right? I can make a 98% accurate model about whether or not there's gonna be a snow day uh, here at the university by just always guessing no. So why does machine learning need labeled data, David? Yeah, so that label is what's providing the signal. Since it doesn't have the knowledge of, say, when you say you're looking for free food, that you need to know, okay, well, I should look for food. What's the type of food people ask? It's not making reasoning from first principles. So what it's doing is it's taking and looking for patterns. And so that labeled data provides a lot of examples. that says, here's a bunch of things of one type, and here's a bunch of things of another type. And then it looks for patterns. And the benefit there is you don't have to explicitly code what it is you're looking for. So I don't have to tell it, look for pizza, look for cheese, and enumerate every possible way someone's talking about something. Hopefully those things have been enumerated in the examples I have, but I didn't have to think about that as the person programming it. And the important thing here is we're trying to catch people as they're really talking about their issues, not using the legal terms of art that we're used to saying. So, you know, someone's not going to come in and say they have an issue of collateral estoppel. You know, people are going to talk about things in their own way. And so what we want to do is make sure we have the labels that are there sort of in sort of our known terms, and we can train the machines to see that. How does the gamification aspect help? Well, so the gamification here is really, it goes back to the title. It's the many hands make light work. So what we're doing is we have this game, and I suppose I, you know, at some point I should share the, the URL. So if you go to learnedhands.law.stanford.edu, you'll find the game there. And what happens is you're presented uh, with these questions and then asked to label them. And you can do all sorts of things like uh, you'll see there's a leaderboard um, so you can compete against your friends. You know, so all the gunners out there from law school, you can relive your glory days. Um, and the idea is that hopefully that motivates people to come in and do the work of doing the labeling. Because it's the type of thing where you need hundreds or thousands of examples, and so we need to get people involved. And what we do is we try to involve, we, we don't set any limits on who can get involved, and we use the wisdom of the crowd um, to basically be able to figure out whether or not something is a label or not. So we're sort of clever about this in that we don't have a fixed set of times someone has to label something uh, as either there or not there before we say it's there. We make some statistical assumptions, and basically it sort of works as if the first time someone sees a question, if one person says it's there, okay, great, and then ask someone else. And if enough people agree, then they can say, okay, we're done with this, that thing's really there. If there's disagreement, then it basically holds on to that question, shows it to more people until it can get confident. And the confidence we're looking for is a 95% confidence level. And so basically everything that is uh, being labeled, we can stay with you know, this 95% confidence level that the, that's the true percentage of, that the true percentage of people who would label it as either being present or not present is more than 50% of the folks on our 
you know, playing the game. So that's really sort of a, a way to sort of group everyone together. They're not quite doing, it's not quite a one vote, one person, one vote sort of scenario, but it's statistically, um, you know, as many votes as we need to be sure or this sure about whether or not to label. So gamification is a way to sort of spread out the work and, and hopefully get people doing something and uh, doing good by having some fun. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the country. Connect your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and the rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit ServeNow.com. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up with the code TDE10. Of course, you can find Clio at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is using gamification of access to justice to train artificial intelligence. And our guest is David Colaruso, the director of Suffolk University Law School's Legal Innovation and Technology Lab. We hear a lot, David, about algorithmic bias. Um, tell me how it applies here and how you solve the problem if it presents a problem. Yeah, so normally uh, when people are talking about algorithmic bias, they're talking about baking in the biases that already exist out in the real world. So if we're talking about feeding a bunch of data to a, a machine and, and using that to spot patterns, if there are some discriminatory patterns in that existing data, they're going to be replicated by the machine. In this case, what that would look like is maybe only being able to recognize the problems of the people whose questions we have. So uh, this main corpus, this main collection of data we have is of people's questions on our legal advice. Well, uh, the folks using our legal advice tend to skew young, male, and white. Right? And that's not necessarily the population that we're seeing in all of our legal service agencies. So that could present a type of bias in that the machine would only learn to recognize the problems as that population was asking them. So what we really want to do to address that is we're actually interested if you're out there and you have your own data set, say your legal services agency, uh, you know, legal, some legal aid office, and you have questions that look like these, so you know, cold call emails, questions from your website, and um, you think they could be useful, then we'd love to actually be able to take those in and in a secure way label them internally. So we can either make it so that only you label them or only some of our staff label them. So we won't make it available on the big game for everyone to label. But the idea is we can take that data in, label them, and then we can use that as part of a labeled data set when we train our classifiers so that our classifiers aren't just recognizing the patterns in one population's questions, but they can see the, the patterns across multiple populations. And that makes the classifiers better and makes them more robust and avoids that bias that can come from just selecting questions from some folks. 
You know, that's such an interesting question because I've always heard about the bias in terms of, for instance, you know, when they use algorithms to determine whether someone is more likely to commit a crime again, you know, that the bias is is basically ethnic. And so in this case, I guess you're quite right. The people who are doing all this for you and and playing the game, they would come largely from a particular kind of population and they, they might miss a lot that would relate to the same issues, but they wouldn't recognize it necessarily. Yeah, and the the issue isn't so much with the labelers, because the labelers are hopefully identifying fact patterns in the data. It's in the way people are asking their questions or communicating those fact patterns. Right, right. So, you know, some people might be using something that sounds like legalese, and some people might just be saying, you know, I was kicked out of my place. Yes. Yeah, I got it. But boy, that that was really interesting. As somebody who was in private practice for several years, it's sometimes amazing how people call into your office and self-label the questions in very unusual ways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indeed. It's never sovereign citizens. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, many legal questions are deeply personal. Uh, how do you address issues of privacy around these lay legal questions? Right. So this is sort of a couple layers to this answer. So the first one, which I sort of uh, talked about before, which was that the questions that are being used in the game portion that is open to anyone to vote on um, are questions that were posted to a site that describes itself as the front page of the Internet. Right. So there was no expectation there that this wasn't going to be shared with the world. And also there are, um, like I said, policies in place in that forum to remove PII and moderators that work with uh, authors to do that. And so actually the questions we got came from the moderators over our legal advice, so we engage with that community. Um, so that's on the labeling the existing data. As far as if in these other questions we were saying, you know, if you have data, talk to us, we might bring it in. Well, uh, the idea is there is we would label it, and then we can train classifiers on it. And then what we share with people is not that labeled data. So when we talk about sharing the labeled data in the end, we're obviously only talking about sharing the labeled data that is already public, the text is already public, so that basically that Reddit data. That other labeled data, we can use it to train classifiers, and we can share the classifiers so the community can get the benefit of that more robust model, but that doesn't actually require us to share the underlying data we use to train the classifier. And so in that way, we can take in and get the benefit of uh, data from a bunch of different groups, but not undermine that um, that privacy or the confidentiality of that information as we share out the classifiers. And as we go forward, eventually as these classifiers start getting used, um, we're going to be looking at opportunities for collecting the data as it gets used from the populations that are actually engaged with it so that we can get a more diverse set then. But there we'll also have um, sort of very thoughtful uh, constraints on how pe- when, when we store that data. So let's say if it's on a website where it's clear this question is not going to be addressed to a lawyer, so no one expects there's going to be any attorney-client privilege, then uh, we might allow people to opt in. You know, yes, you can use my data to help improve the algorithm sort of thing. But if someone's doing something like these you know, legal questions online, where even though there might not be attorney-client privilege at the beginning because you haven't actually talked to the attorney yet, if there's that expectation that something like that might occur, then we, when we create these classifiers, might make it such that they actually only store the information long enough to be able to make the classification and then purge that. So we'll never actually have it. It'll only be you know, available to the folks who ends up, the attorney that it ends up with at the end. So we're, we're going to be thoughtful about that. So I guess the answer is we're being uh, careful about what we do or don't release as far as label data, and then we're being thoughtful about how we collect data in the future as we actually implement the system. So how would you evaluate the success of Learned Hands thus far? 
Well, I'm going to say it's successful enough that everyone should, should play, but not so successful that you should think you don't have to play. <laughs> so we've been running for a couple of months now, and I was just checking uh, the numbers here. And we have um, just around 400 folks have actually signed in and done actual labels. So we've had thousands of folks come and, you know, visit the site. But as far as people who have actually engaged with the game and, and labeled things, and we have about 400 or so users. Our active monthly users, so people who come back and, you know, use it sometime within a month, the numbers, they've been varying, but they're somewhere between, you know, 70-some-odd up to like 100 folks a month. So that's a pretty good, at least in this last month. So, you know, that's a pretty good number of sort of critical mass of folks who come by and keep playing the game. And so that's uh, right now the main measurement of success we're looking for, because what we want to do is we want to get enough people labeling stuff to get a good data set we can use to train our classifiers. So we, we've started to train some preliminary classifiers on the data we have, and those actually come out doing pretty well, which is to say they're better than a coin flip as far as guessing whether or not something's there. And there's you know a little more nuance to that that um, I get into in some of my writings or something. I don't know if we could throw a link up or I mean I could I could talk forever, but the point is they're better than just guessing, and they will only get better the more data we get. So uh, really what I'd encourage your listeners to do is to go to learnedhands.law.stanford.edu and uh, play the game because then they can actually help make it more successful. And really what we're trying to do is the more we get, uh, the more quickly we'll be able to create these classifiers and the quicker we'll be able to get a tool out to folks um, that they can use to help people to the resources they need. Well, I think this is this really is a very creative idea. I love how gamification sometimes really makes a difference in, in how rapidly you can progress and, and the quality of the work. And, and this is just very, very, very creative use. And I love that it has such a noble purpose to it, too. So thank you for being our guest today, David, and talking to us about the project. And thank you for having me. And I should mention, this is, all of this uh, work is being uh, generously funded by the Pew Charitable Trust. So um, they're, they're also uh, someone to thank for this. Well, indeed, we thank them as well. And that does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers in Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us at Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to The Digital Edge, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.